All right. Hello and welcome to the first episode of season two of Health Conscious Podcast presented by the Sloan Program and Health Administration here at Cornell. I'm Peyton Eisner. I'm Christian Taji. And we're glad to be here to bring you this new season. Christian, so excited to be able to bring this back. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what we're envisioning for this year for this podcast? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Peyton. I'm really excited to, to kick off this podcast. Something that's always given me energy as a student and an early careerist has been interacting with folks in different parts of the healthcare ecosystem. You know, I've dipped toes in for-profit hospitals and health systems and not-for-profit and post-acute care, consulting, research. And it always gives me energy to hear different voices with different perspectives across the healthcare ecosystem. And frankly, Peyton, this is an exciting time to talk and learn about healthcare. Um, you know, all eyes for better, for worse are on our healthcare system right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and a presidential election. Um, you know, healthcare is dynamic and it's changing right before our eyes. So our vision this season is to draw together um, thought leaders um, across healthcare um, to hear their perspectives and takes on how healthcare is changing and how young leaders can prepare um, for a career in healthcare leadership in this dynamic and changing industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head and we're super excited to be bringing you guys a lot of interesting people um, this season throughout the year um, along the way. Um, and so we're going to be doing it. It's a little different with COVID. We're going to be interviewing people via phone and Zoom. Um, and so it might not be the Pulitzer Prize winning audio that you might expect from a regular podcast, but we're doing our best. So we're really excited for our first guest today. And he's actually a professor of here at Cornell University, he's Associate Professor of Policy Ana Analysis and Management, Dr. Nicholas Zebarth, and he's here in the Sloan program. Dr. Zebarth is originally from Germany and received um, bachelor's, master's, and his PhD from um, institutions in Berlin in economics and business. Uh, and he's really popular and has done a lot of research on the economics of paid sick leave. And so that's what we're going to be talking to him about today along the way. But at Cornell, he teaches a comparative health systems course for undergraduate students. He teaches an introductory course for the U.S. healthcare system for Sloan MHA students. And he also teaches a second sequence of health economics for PhD students, um, as well as teaching in the um, executive MHA program here at Cornell as well. He's won several awards for his research, and he ranks among the top half of a percentile of young economic um, with less than 15 years of research activity. So he's done a lot of research. He's very special. Um, and he's a great guy. And so we're excited to have him here on the podcast for the first episode. So here he is, Dr. Zebarth. All right. Well, we're here with Dr. Zebarth. Um, and thank you for joining us for the first episode, Dr. Zebarth. We're very appreciative of it. We wanted to start off and kind of go off on the academic world. And you're um, obviously a professor at Cornell and, and very ingrained in academics and research. And so we wanted to get your take on, as people are going through the education world, they're getting their degrees, what does it look like kind of taking the educational theoretical and putting into practical workplace? What's that transition look like? What's some of the difficulties um, in doing that and, and kind of getting from, you know, the classroom to the workplace? Uh, thanks so much, Peyton. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a big honor, a big pleasure to be your first guest. I really appreciate it. Um, it's also my first podcast, so it's our, you know, uh, first time here. It's an excellent question. Um, and I could make a joke saying that I'm not the right person to answer the question because I've spent most of my life in academia, but fortunately I have some insights. So 
Um, I was a student too, not too long ago. I have done internships and I talked to a lot of people, obviously. And my take on that is um, at Cornell or at any university, we usually provide a framework of ideas and knowledge to you and teach you social skills like critical thinking, social interaction, teamwork, abilities to accept criticism, constructive criticism, turn it into something positive. So it's like a little bit of a test ground where you can learn and grow. Um, but then later you have to make the transition to your uh, private sector or public sector job. And that really depends on the market you're in, on the sector you're in. But my guess is, and you probably know that, that you already get a preview in your internships. And what's really important also is that we have you know, round tables, capstone projects, that you meet alums, that you meet practitioners, so you get a sense of it. Um, my understanding and my feeling is that a lot of what you learn later and what you need to, to become a, a leader in the sector, healthcare sector or elsewhere, is um, you know, training that you, on the job training essentially. Um, you get the basics and the skills and I also believe a lot is like common sense and being able to lead a team of diverse people and, and having social skills that you acquire early in life. And then um, when you work and gain experience, um, again, depending on your specific job, and institution, uh, you, you learn on the job simply. That's the same for all of us. You know, I was an undergrad and then I was a master's student and then I was a PhD student and um, then you're an assistant professor and then you're an associate professor. And along the way, um, there are new challenges and they seem big and it seems like you can't do it, but you actually can. And you just simply do it step by step and you grow and, and you'll be fine. Um, I don't know if that's the best answer, but that's my take on it. No, that's wonderful. I, I appreciate those insights. I like that idea as, you know, this world kind of being a testing ground for testing our, our practical skills and trying this out and trying that out. Um, yes. things to practice. That's, that's a great, great, um, great example there. So kind of similarly, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of being in the Sloan program and, and being a graduate student is being, is this kind of technical learning, diving into journal articles, diving into research, et cetera. Um, and I'm afraid of when I step into the practical world that that part of me being a bit neglected. So my question is, as we transition, as students transition to the practical world, um, what resources do you recommend that, stu that um, like recent graduates take advantage of to continue technical learning, to stay curious, to keep researching, to, uh, to, uh, to kind of continue reinforcing that technical part of, of, of us? Um, another excellent question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good that you anticipate the challenge. So I assume you will be, you know, extremely busy later in life and in your job and you will have little time, but you have to budget time for this continuous ongoing education. I think a wonderful way to do it is maybe stay in touch, um, be an alum who comes back and who participates in roundtable discussions try to engage in, in Sloan events. Or I'm now associate director of the Institute for Health and Futures and we have a lot of um, interaction and webinars and um, workshops. And that way you can do something really useful for yourself and for, for future students and um, also support your former 
university and stay in touch. Otherwise, it's read newspapers is my best advice. Uh, sign up for websites that specialize in uh, sending you a daily update on health-related news or health-related news and, and make it a habit to screen those um, daily or weekly newsletters. And that's one way to stay in touch, I think, with what's going on. That's great. I'm a huge fan. I still get the hard copy of The Economist. I literally flip through on my couch and read through and mark it up and things like that. So um, that's great. That's, that's, great. that's an excellent, yeah, it's an excellent publication. I also have it. Sometimes I don't have time. These days they have like options to listen to the articles or when you go to yeah. the gym, but um, pick your favorite, you know, magazine outlet or online subscription and then make it a habit to to do it regularly read it and listen to people definitely so uh, this for this next section of the podcast we're going to transition a little bit more into into uh some of the research and the work that you've done um but kind of as a segue between these two different parts of our of our podcast today um i wanted to ask a little bit about how research just generally trickles into policy change itself right i mean a lot of your research is on um, policies surrounding sick leave and benefits. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of walking us through the different stakeholders involved from the research process to the policy change process, how does that, how does that, that process play out? Um, I wish I knew, but here's my take on it. Um, so research is really different and partly unsatisfying and on many dimensions from, from private sector work. And one difference is that it takes years to get a paper published. So first you have an idea. Um, I do mostly empirical work. So let's say you have an idea, then you need to compile data. If you have public data, you could simply download it, but that's an unusual case. Otherwise you need to apply for access. Then you, you run your empirical models, you coordinate with your co-authors, you analyze the data, you write the paper, you have a track. Then you present it typically at conferences, academic conferences, you get feedback, mostly technical feedback, but sometimes also by, by uh, practitioners and, and, and people in the more policy arena, depending on the conference that you go to. Um, we have an APAM conference where you have people who do uh, work in institutions and leaders and they could give you valuable you know, practical feedback. And then, you know, hopefully you can submit the paper to a journal after shortest time period is maybe a year or two, and then you get rejected, you send it to another journal, then you get invited to revise and resubmit the paper, and then if you are lucky after one or two revisions, it gets accepted. And then uh, along the way, you typically, um, you typically don't have a lot of talks unless somebody approaches you about your findings, with journalists, but once it's accepted, most journals, especially policy journals, like Health Affairs is a high impact journal that also practitioners read, um, they would um, send out a summary to a group of interested stakeholders. And then at that point, it could be that journalists call you up about the research findings. So now you have COVID-19, then when the paper really is um, of, of high importance, you may get invited to TV interview at CNN, like that's the best case scenario. And then people watch it and it's not clear how much sticks. So the, I'll give you an example on sick leave later, but some of my research on sick leave, um, that's the case when you publish on a certain topic over and over again, then, then policymakers and stakeholders know your name after several years. 
and they would ask you for advice or they would cite your work. And then when policymakers write a bill, what you, what, the, what you can hope for, what the best case scenario is that your research gets cited as a justification for having a certain policy. So that is a really um, big accomplishment, I think. It's still not clear in how far your research was not responsible for that bill. Um, certainly it was supportive, uh, but it was also not the main factor in most cases. So uh, the other thing is you get invited sometimes to expert panels or committees. Um, that's work that you usually do when you're a little more senior, like when you're tenured or co-professor. And then um, Sean Nicholson, for example, is advising hospitals. You can serve on boards. And then you see more immediate impact maybe of your personal advice and research. Well, that's fascinating. And I think that's a, that's a great transition into your specific research, which we've mentioned has been significantly on sick leave um, and the benefits, benefits associated with it. Um, now, sick leave might be more important than it's ever been um, with the pandemic and COVID-19. But I don't think a lot of Americans seem to understand why sick leave is so important. It's one of the few countries in the world that don't offer guaranteed sick leave to employees. And so can you talk a little bit about what the benefits of instituting federal paid sick leave would be for employers and employees? Yes, sure. So the, um, you correctly summarized that the United States is one of two or three countries in the world, OECD countries, that do not guarantee universal access to paid sick leave. And essentially, employers offer it as a fringe benefit on a voluntary basis, like health insurance for a long, long time. And so that leads to a situation where we have a lot of inequity and inequality in, in access and coverage. And ironically, certain service sector jobs that have a lot of customer contact and coworker contact um, do not offer paid sick leave. Like in the food and accommodation sector, uh, less than 50% have uh, paid sick leave. Um, so the benefits have long been, I would say, denied by employers and industry representatives, not all of them, of course, but they have been reluctant because the argument is, well, it increases labor costs, and it, it reduces wages, it makes labor more expensive, um, it's just bureaucratic, and um, most importantly, employees just take advantage of it and, and they shirk and they don't come to work anymore. Um, I think these, over time, we've seen, after a lot of states implemented sick pay mandates, that all these dire predictions have not um, have not manifested. So the there's no evidence really, and I've done research on that, that it has been severely disruptive for labor markets. At least in normal times, we don't see that uh, job growth is weaker in states that implement sick pay mandates and wage growth is also not weaker. And the reason could be that the design of the US sick pay mandates, they, they I don't know if you're familiar with it, but how they work is that it's, in, it's basically an individual sick pay account. So you work and for every week that you work, for every 40 hours that you work, you get a, an hour of paid sick leave on an individual sick pay credit account. So after two months um, of work, you have a day and you accumulate these days and then you take them when you need them also for sick children. And um, it's incredibly important for a lot of people especially single parents, that they are able to take care of sick children as another benefit. But the most immediate benefit is that when you're really sick and you're suffering or you're contagious simply, that you do not have to go to work and 
spread the disease and um, be in pain when you work. It's still not a generous benefit because you typically accumulate up to six, seven, eight days a year, and then unused days roll over. Um, but the design is at least um, beneficial in the sense that it's not overly generous, so labor costs do not increase by a lot. So employers see no negatives, I would argue, on average, and they could see positive effects like employers, employees, sorry, are happier, are more satisfied, are more productive, um, and they don't come to work sick and spread diseases. And I think, like we know now, after many months and years of experiences, that also industry representatives and employers have. Um, understood that it's actually a good policy to offer at least in that in that context that they have now in the United States. So I do believe that it's a beneficial policy for both sides and um, in an ideal world, you know, employers offer it voluntarily and have always offered it, but there could be instances where um, employees have to be nudged and, and even mandated to do that. Yeah, and I think in 2009, the United States had an opportunity to kind of pilot this and see how it worked with the swine flu pandemic. And now that we're in the COVID-19 pandemic, it feels like the lessons learned from 2009 weren't super helpful. So did the swine flu pandemic alter the course of paid sick leave for the United States in any substantial long-term way? Are there lessons that we could carry over to this pandemic um, that we're currently doing? And how could paid sick leave impact the spread or hoping to curb the spread of COVID-19 in the United States, which has one of the worst, it, it has the worst uh, spread of coronavirus in the world? Yeah, really good question. So I, it's hard to measure, of course, how, how much the swine flu has um, moved the needle, but I would say it did, at least at the regional level. So since 2009, um, we have 12, 13 states that have uh, passed sick pay mandates and uh, many, many more cities, a lot of dozens of big cities, uh, well-known cities like Chicago, New York City, San Francisco, and so on, have sick pay mandates now. Um, and it's useful for us to have the staggered implementation of these mandates across regions in the US over time, because then we can apply what we call um, natural experiments, or we can use, exploit natural experiments, and estimate causal effects of these mandates on outcomes such as influenza-like illness rates. So the flu is uh, uh, technically called influenza-like illness um, at the CDC. And in one research that we did is we compiled data at the state week level. And what you find consistently is that when states pass sick pay mandates, that flu rates decrease significantly also at the state. And um, those findings, I think, are informative uh, for the corona, for the novel coronavirus pandemic. And journalists, I mean, it was unexpected for us, but our research has become relevant um, all of a sudden, hopefully it was before, has, uh, has gained new relevance, let's put it that way. And then when journalists asked me that question, I would say, well, it's not exactly clear in how far that translates to COVID-19 and what sort of validity is, but um, you know certainly that in March, there was a bipartisan, the first bipartisan federal emergency sick leave bill was passed. So employees, in at least in firms with less than 500 employees, uh, can take emergency sick leave now for two weeks for coronavirus-related reasons. 
Um, it expires at the end of the year, unfortunately, and it's, it's you know, just coronavirus related and it's just two weeks, but it's the first step. And we did follow up research and also find there that uh, there's evidence that this uh, federal bill helped to at least um, flatten the curve a little bit. And you're right, I mean, we still have no universal sick leave in the United States, uh, but, and I hope that policymakers come together and that we get an extension or renewal of this federal bill. So people and policymakers, researchers and everybody, and it makes sense intuitively, start to understand that when you go to work sick and spread sneeze and, and spread the disease, that um, that's obviously bad for everybody and has external negative externalities as well. Absolutely. In the last couple of years, when we look at healthcare policy in the United States, it's been centered a lot around health insurance. Do health insurance companies play any role in sick leave um, in terms of advocating for it? Is it a benefit for health insurance companies? Um, or are they, what is their role in this and in the COVID-19 pandemic? What can health insurers be doing to help curb that spread as well? Yeah, um, great questions again. And I don't have a perfect answer um, to the first one, at least not. It's a little bit puzzling. So when sick leave started in Europe in more than 100 years ago, it was part of the health insurance benefit package. So medical treatments were not expensive at the time and not super useful. Uh, but it was extremely important and valuable to workers that they could get part of their full salary replaced when they had an accident or when they couldn't work because of sickness. So it was in, in Europe, it was part of the benefit package. In the United States, we haven't had that tradition. And I personally, I feel like, and I believe it's true that to this day, the health insurers do not really um, talk about it very much or promote it or they don't it's obviously not part of the health insurance benefit package these days and it's a separate policy it's uh, more often linked to parental leave or what's called medical leave which is for extended illness something more like short-term disability insurance um, and it's an interesting question to ask about the role of insurers here um, what is a little bit puzzling to me is why there is no private market that where insurance companies sell sick pay policies to individuals. Um, uh, we have that in Europe. So in, in Switzerland, Germany, and other countries, when you're self-employed or also when you're um, an employee, a regular employee, you can, there's a good market for sick pay policies. You can purchase these policies and insurers offer them. And in the United States, it's very underdeveloped. So we have short-term sick leave and, and uh, sorry, short-term disability and long-term disability policies, maybe on the private group level, but not really on the basic group. And insurers, um, I would urge them if they would ask for, for my opinion to, to, to look into this and see if they can offer a policy. Um, and if, if I'm pretty sure it can be um, successfully sold on the market. Um, adverse selection is a problem. And then insurers, the other question you ask is what can they do to curb the spread of the disease? Well, um, inform their policyholders about preventive um, prevention methods to curb the spread, the evidence on mask wearing, uh, social distancing, hand washing, and then um, covering tests. I mean, those are, in my opinion, um, policies and 
methods they could adapt and they could they could they could inform and educate the policyholders. Um, they've done that regarding telemedicine, some of them at least, and um, I wish they maybe also would play a bigger role in, in prevention efforts. And you know, that's that's my take, but maybe that's wishful thinking. Yeah, really interesting discussion here. I mean, it, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I, I've gathered that our you know our par the paid sick leave benefits in our in, in in the United States are relatively fragmented, uncoordinated, and limited at this point in time. Um, but I know that in some of the relief bills that have recently been, been 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 placed before Congress, there has been some degree of bipartisan support for these smaller steps moving forward. So I guess just to kind of tie a bow on this conversation. Um, of paid sick leave, who's pushing back on this right now? Um, and do any criticisms of paid sick leave um, hold any substance? Well, I agree. I mean, the silver lining is that I do see um, bipartisan support for that bill. I also, if you, when you have, when you look at polls, you find um, a solid majority of independents and Republicans being in favor of some form of paid sick leave and even mandates. Um, question is always in how far should the government mandate it or not? Um, but even, even when you ask about mandates, we have a majority of Republicans supporting them. And also Republicans in Congress, some of them are really supportive, some are less supportive. And I think the main concern is a little bit of an ideological one that could, could be a real concern when you are in uh, economic situations where small businesses in particular really struggle to survive and um, you know, see what's happening. They, um, you could argue that we have bigger problems right now than mandating employers to provide basic leave. Um, we need to make sure that firms don't close forever, that, that we inject liquidity and that we help them to survive and not lay off their workers. Um, and that's happening when workers get laid off and obviously they don't have any basically. Um, so I can see the argument that it's not the right time to do it. On the other hand, it's relatively inexpensive policy and like the um, bipartisan um, emergency sick leave bill in March, you could think about an extension and a version where the federal government provides uh, subsidies or, or tax breaks and then companies will still provide these sick pay benefits. And then, because on the other hand, it's clear, you have no interest as an employer that you have an outbreak of the coronavirus in your business. I mean, imagine that happens. Uh, workers come to work sick, spread the disease, have the coronavirus, and then um, you have to close down, down entirely. So it's um, in nobody's interest. And um, still, I can see concerns that you don't want to burden specifically and especially small businesses at this time now in these difficult economic times. So um, I can see both sides, but I still hope that there will be a package and an extension of this emergency sick leave bill. We know the coronavirus will be around for much longer than we thought initially. It won't magically disappear. Um, also not uh, by the end of the year when the bill expires. So, and until we have a safe vaccine and we have a distribution channel, Will take months, so um, there will be talks, and and I'm hopeful that we have bipartisan support for this for this um, aspect at least of policy measures. I see. 
Perfect. Well, hey, thank you so much for your your for for letting us uh, kind of dive in a little bit more into your work on paid sick leave, as well as um, academia broadly as well. I've really really enjoyed our conversation today. We have one last final wrap up question that we like to ask all of our guests, and here on the podcast we like to invite guests from all of the different parts of the healthcare ecosystem, but we all ask them the same question to close out these episodes. Um, Dr. Zebarth, what tool do you recommend the next generation of healthcare leaders add to their toolkit? Um, difficult question, good question. Uh, I thought about it and I do believe it's really important for future leaders to learn, even if it's hard and it's not your favorite topic, to learn about statistic and econometrics and specifically adding to your toolkit, it, it will become more and more important to know what you know, big data is, what it means, and some techniques to analyze these data. Like, you know, if you have a chance to dive into machine learning um, and broadly try to understand, you know, where the technology leads us. And uh, if you envision in 20, 30 years, what we, what possibilities we have to collect data, and then on the company side to analyze the data and analyze the data in a smart way and in the right way, then this is probably. Uh, I don't know if that's what you had in mind as a tool, but um, being skilled and sophisticated in kind of metric and statistical um, uh, skills and uh, methods will help you a lot in your career. Um, and if you don't want to dig into the details, try to understand the big picture and what they do broadly and what the downsides are and limitations. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So thank you for that. I'll definitely be taking it to heart myself. Uh, it seems like big data is one of the big buzzwords in healthcare these days, uh, as Christian and I are participating in a class on the subject uh, in oh, yeah. the Sloan program this year. So, well, Dr. Zebar, thank you so much for joining us via Zoom all the way from Switzerland, no less, um, here to talk with us today and be our first guest on the podcast. We really appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful and I really enjoyed it. And um, all the best. Good luck. I will subscribe to your podcast immediately. Oh, thank you. And for those wondering, you can check the show notes in this podcast to check out some of Dr. Seabard's research and everything. But join us back here in a couple of weeks for the next episode. Thanks.